Tonight I want to speak on something. Um, it was a book originally written in the 1980s by a pastor named Richard Exley. And uh, it's called The Rhythm of Life, the book. And that's what I'm talking about tonight, The Rhythm of Life. Uh, it, it was a book that Pastor Walt gave the pastors at that time, in the, uh, towards the late 1980s. <clears throat> and uh, a couple of the pastors remembered. Pastor Bob remembered it. Pastor Maureen remembered it. And um, really a good a good book of, to meditate on, consider, and how we live our lives. So anyway, in the early 90s, very early 90s, I said to Pastor Walt, you know, I think I'd like to do that book on a Wednesday night and speak on it. He said, yeah, great, do it. Share on it. So it's hard to believe, but I spoke on this 30 years ago. I can't be much more than 30. I don't understand how this is possible. But yeah, it was a long time ago. I said, I think I want to share this again. Because obviously a lot of people were not here 30 years ago when I first shared on this. You would have been blessed, but you weren't here. So I'm going to do it again. And um, the guidelines he wrote for us in his book are worth mentioning. It's worth considering, worth pondering. He's got a good concept here. Uh, basically, um, Brother Exley wrote on the concept that there is a rhythm of life that we live in. And uh, a flow of life that happens that we need to recognize. It's to our benefit that we recognize this. So I'm going to mention all four of them now to you. How about we have slide one? And they're very simple. There's work, there's rest, there's play, and there's worship. That's what we're going to look at tonight, this rhythm of life. Work, rest, play, worship. Um, so if you're writing that down, that would be good. <clears throat> so life, you know, I think we all know it should not be all work, and it should not be all play. I think we all know that. Uh, but too often, you know, that's how most people live their lives, in either extreme. And that's not good. So there are uh, rhythms of daily life for us to experience that we're looking at here. We need to recognize them and learn how to flow with them. Uh, rhythms of life must be lived out in a calendar year or we're going to have lack in our lives on a very personal level. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, let's go there. But first, if you don't read the book of Ecclesiastes frequently, I'll give you a little background. We have to remember that Ecclesiastes is a poetry book in the Old Testament. In the, in the Old Testament, you have history books, which are also called narratives. You have poetry books like Psalms, Proverbs. You have prophetic books. Well, Ecclesiastes is a poetry book in Hebrew. And if you remember anything from school, you don't read poetry the same way you read uh, a novel. It doesn't flow that way. Poetry is a very contemplative, meditative type reading. Uh, it's just, just read differently. If you've never read poetry and you pick it up, you go, I don't get it. Because you're not reading it correctly, that's why. Uh, so poetry here is, um, is very important to the Hebrews. The book of Psalms is a poetry book. Uh, a lot of people don't realize Job is a poetry book in the Old Testament. It's not a narrative. Uh, so here, Ecclesiastes has been called the philosophy book of the Bible. A lot of them have coined that phrase, especially of the Old Testament. And it basically tells us of all of mankind's efforts without God are futile. Anything we would do in life without Him is meaningless. With Him, it has meaning. Without him, it's meaningless. So much of the daily philosophy of living is mentioned here in Ecclesiastes. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we have here in verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything. 
there is a time for every matter under heaven. Same verse from the Amplified Bible. There is a season, a appointed time for everything, and a time for every delight, an event, or purpose under heaven. So I'm sure the older crowd here tonight is trying to hum a song from the 60s. Don't do that. Uh, but we, we, here's the key here. There's a time for everything. And what we just looked at here, those four rhythms of life, is literally a time for everything in life. And there's an appointed time, an appropriate time for everything. And this suggests a balance in life of what we are to do. It suggests that we put things in daily perspective of prioritizing our life. Uh, considering these four rhythms that we just looked at, these topics here, uh, there's a continuous life cycle that should be in every stage of our life, from young all the way to elderly. I have slide two. So another way to look at these four, oh, I like how they did that graphic. Another way to look at these four, it's a continuous cycle that flows, a cycle of worship, work, rest, play, worship, ongoing. This is how we should be living from year to year in this ongoing cycle. Uh, all parts of this are just a continuous cycle of rhythm uh, that takes place in our lives. A couple things to um, consider before we go any further is that each part of these are equally important. One is not more important than the other, which can surprise some people. They're all equally important, and if we miss one of them, we're going to be living a frustrated life. Another point to take into account here, if we get stuck in one of them, our life becomes stagnant. So we don't want to get stuck in one, and we don't want to miss one. We want it to flow in our lives. So there could be people listening to this message tonight, maybe on podcasts or here in the, in the service, um, who are stuck in one of these areas. Uh, there could be people omitting some of these areas in their lives. And what I just said is really actually very common. A lot of people are stuck, and a lot of people are omitting a rhythm of life. They really are. So let's take a look at this. Let's keep on listening here. Let's look at the first one, work. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 out of the Amplified Bible. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and assure himself that there is good in his labor. Even this I have seen is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So the key there is there is good in his labor. Uh, the Lord expects us to work. In fact, there's scriptures in the New Testament about that, that people uh, in New Testament churches in the first century weren't that too keen on working. They were lazy, want to live off of other people. They were waiting for Jesus to return in the rapture. And uh, of course, they get rebuked for that kind of behavior. Um, the Lord expects us to work, and that our work would be a blessing to us. It'd be a good uh, chance here to diverse for a second. Um, you know, no one here is from the 19th century or the 18th century. We're all 20th century products and into the 21st century. We have a very skewed, bent look at what life is, because all we know is the 20 and 21st centuries. And they're peculiar times, really peculiar times, because a lot of things have changed and not for the good. Let me just mention just briefly about the concept of work, very briefly. Um, men and women are wired differently. Big surprise. 
Men and women, I was really serious about this, they're wired differently. Men, you're very happy about that, I can see, yes. I don't know which end, but that's okay. Uh, men need to work. God made them that way. If they don't work, they lose their manhood. They lose a personal dignity that makes them a man. So all work is valuable, whether you earn a lot of money or very little, work is a valuable thing. No one can turn their nose up on somebody else who earns less than them. If they work, they are to be honored because they work. That's an ethic we don't really have anymore because we measure ourselves of, I earn more money than you, I'm more important than you. Um, a lot of people were offended during the COVID season when they talked about necessary workers. All workers are necessary. I get the medical community is special, but all workers are necessary. All work is valuable. So men need to work. They're wired to work. Uh, women uh, were never meant to be working like men. Men get their value by what they do. Women get their value through relationships, being wives, moms, uh, you know, mothers, grandmothers. They get their value through relationships rather than what they work at. So we're wired very different. Yet we have a culture today where men have failed women and they're forced to work, or people can't survive on one income, uh, or you have to have the other person working just to get benefits. Or uh, we have men trying to be women, women trying to be men. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, but at core, for centuries, this is how men and women have been wired. We don't know that because we didn't live then. So all we know of is 20 and 21st century living, and it's not normal. It's not normal how people think. It's not normal how society is structured. There's a lot that's just not normal. And um, so it's very important that we look at the concept of work here. Work is approached very differently by men and women. I mean, when, when I was real little, uh, only my father worked. My mother didn't even drive because she was supposed to be home with the children, except I was the children, only one child. I was a handful. Uh, but anyway, you know, but the point was um, women got their value through their families. And it hasn't changed. We're wired this way. Men get their value through uh, work. I realize there's Mr. Moms out there. I got it. But basically, this is how the human race is wired. So when it comes to work here, we also need to realize that God likes work. But we, are, we, but we need to learn that we serve Him and not ourselves. We don't fall in love with our work, the work of our own hands. All through the Word of God, that's a no-no. Uh, that's not desirable. And um, rather, the work, as we saw in Ecclesiastes, is supposed to be a blessing to us, not a drudgery to us. Uh, the problem we have today for so many people is that they have have-to jobs, not want-to jobs. People do what they often—so many people hate their jobs because they have to work, so, you know, they have to go to work. And that's sad. It shouldn't be that way. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Um, so, uh, the Lord would want us to have pleasure in our work, a want-to job. So, when we think of work, we also have to realize we're a product of the society and the age that we live in. Um, we need to consider that, this is a big revelation, that we are post-Puritans. We, we, ha we have come after the Puritans. What a revelation that is. Uh, but we need to understand this is how we view work in America. Work was changed by the Puritans. I don't know if you realize that. It's called, you must have heard the expression, the Puritan work ethic. 
Many people have heard that expression. Um, there was a famous German philosopher who is the father of modern sociology, and, and he was German, and his, his name in Germany was pronounced Max Weber. In English, it's Max Weber. Uh, so, <laughs> Max Weber, really, <laughs> in the latter 1800s, wrote this book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. It had a powerful effect on the intellectual community. And basically what uh, Max observed was the Puritans believed poverty was sinful. Uh, not working was sinful. Profit was good. Work brings profit. We need to work and, and work as much as we can. That was the Puritan ethic they brought to America, and it shaped the United States of America. Uh, so how Americans view work today has greatly been influenced by this Protestant Puritan work ethic. Uh, yet in the 19th and 20th centuries, something new came up uh, that also produced something called overachievers, the workaholics. They now arose. So overachievers are basically people who cannot rest as long as there are unfinished tasks that remain. Uh, they're obsessed with work. Work for them is the reason why they live. Uh, sometimes they take on too much because they don't know how to say no or they don't know how to prioritize the work they have. Uh, they will work themselves into exhaustion. Uh, since there always are going to be unfinished tasks in life, these people can never truly rest. When they're resting, they're thinking about working. And that's not rest at all. Uh, so that mentality can cost you your marriages, your families. I remember somebody in church here who owned a very successful business. He was one of several business partners. He did not want to live like the rest of his business partners lived. Now, he's a believer. And uh, he didn't want to live for work. And every one of those business partners, their living for work cost them something. Either their health, their marriages, their families, it cost them something because they lived for this. And although he was an equal partner, he didn't want to live for it. So they kind of like didn't have him be a decision maker in the business because he didn't work hard enough in their eyes. And um, so uh, there's the old expression, I don't know where it comes from, but it used to be uh, sa uh, sacrificing your marriage and your family on the altar of ambition. You've heard that expression, I'm sure. And yet that's true. It costs people their health. It costs people their fellowship with God. There's no time for love, no time for family, no time for solitude with Father God. Did you know something? Men on their deathbeds will never ever say, I wish I worked more. Too often, what will they really say? I wish I had spent more time with my family and worked less. Right? There was that famous song in the 1970s by Harry Chapin, the Cats in the Cradle song, those of you who remember it. There are people who can't listen to that song. It'll make them cry immediately because it remembers them of their fathers. That work took their father away from them. Didn't have to. It was the father's choice. We had one of our pastors here many years back that was a very important song for him because he didn't want to end up like his father. So that was a very important decision for him. Um, although he was successful at what he did outside of the church, he didn't earn his living here at the Church of Grace and Peace, uh, he had to be very careful that he wouldn't turn into his father because he also had a very high work ethic. 
Uh, you know, and when we look at this, we remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? So we should achieve, but we don't need to be overachievers. We don't need to live to work. But yet we need to remember, work is not an enemy. Your work matters to God. That's a revelation for some people that they need to get. No matter what they do, what you do matters because you're doing it. God's son, God's daughter is doing it. Because you're doing it, it's blessed. Because you're doing it, it has value. If I'm going to buy something, it's kind of hard today to do that, but if I'm going to buy something, I want it made by Christians' hands because they made it for the Lord. I want to buy that. I'd rather even pay more money for it. I remember there was a candle shop years ago that was owned by Christians. They, they made their own candles. It costs more. I don't care. You made it. I want to buy it. That's why I like to go to Lancaster, Pennsylvania and buy things because the Amish make it. It's theirs. They tithe on what they earn. They, they do this unto the Lord. In other words, their work matters to God. All of us should have that view. <clears throat> in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 here in verse 19, we have more. It says, furthermore, as every person to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also given them the opportunity to enjoy them, to receive his reward and rejoice in his labors. This is the gift of God. How about that? The Lord expects us to enjoy our work, and it is a gift. What's the old expression? If you, I had to write it down, so I'm not going to remember it. If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. How true. How true. That is getting back to we should be having want-to jobs, not have-to jobs. So it's okay to like work, uh, but we need to remember that our fulfillment in life doesn't come from work. That's the big key there. People who think their fulfillment comes from work, they believe their job or their career fulfills them, they are going to end up frustrated and empty, especially when they can't work. They've then lost their purpose. Did you know the most stressful time for a man in his life, they have a list of it, is not death of spouse. There's one even higher than that, retirement. How about that? How about that? Retirement. So many men hit a life crisis when they retire. Uh, they get depressed. I remember when my father retired. He was really down for several months. I didn't know why. My, my mom didn't know why. He has lost his purpose because that's what you do as a man. You work. If you can't work, what is your purpose then? Now, that's not correct biblically, but that's how he thought, how, how so many thought. Their work becomes their identity. Did you know one of the highest suicide rates are those men that retire within the first year? And it's extremely high suicide rate. Amazing. And I have even seen in life that come true. Uh, people my parents knew, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty wild. It's that much of a life crisis to some of them. Like my life no longer has any meaning. Uh, amazing. Some men, they retire and they literally drink themselves to death because what else am I going to do? That's your only purpose in life? Oh my gosh, it's horrible. So true fulfillment comes from a balance of what we're looking at tonight. We're looking at a rhythm of life. True fulfillment comes from when the worker is in right relationship with his creator and has found joy and purpose 
with God in his work. Our jobs are not our identity. Our identity is in Christ. This is a big thing we should always remember. Um, and I'm going to make a couple side comments here. I've met people over the years looking for a Christian job. That's not what you should be looking for. You should be a Christian in a job. Amen. Amen. Another side comment, getting back to what I just said, we should have want-to jobs. Too many people make career decisions when they should be making this as believers now, when we should be making decisions, what's God's vision for my life? And I need to make decisions accordingly. In other words, we need to make vision decisions, not career decisions. Amen. And I do know of someone uh, who was offered, actually they were coming here to Grace and Peace, and they were offered a very large job. They were a banker in uh, England. Uh, but and it paid a lot more than what they were getting paid as a banker here. It was phenomenal. And the guy just said, wait a minute, can I commute from England to the Church of Grace and Peace? And I'm like, no, then it's not my job. That's not my vision for my life. That's a vision decision, not a career decision. It would have cost him something spiritually, and he knew it. So it's very important that we find fulfillment by seeing God's vision that he's placed within us come to pass. And that's a very personal thing on what that means. Um, I know people, when they became believers, they changed careers. I knew, we had, we had a guy here at Grace and Peace. He was a phenomenal guitar player. He was gifted. This is long before Grace and Peace. And he got born again, and they were just about to put him into a rock band that became very, very famous. And as soon as he became a believer, he was like, I can't do that. I just know that's not my future. How can you turn down all this money? Do you know what we're offering you? I don't understand it. He knew practically nothing about the Word of God. I don't understand it, but I, I can't do this. And he got a job and a trade that paid far, far less than what he could have earned as a rocker. But he didn't go in that direction. Instead, he devoted his life to worship and still does uh, as, as a worship musician. <laughs> wow. He made a vision decision. I didn't even realize it at the time. Not a career decision. The career decision probably would have brought him destruction. Uh, wow. Okay. Work. How about rest? Let's talk about rest. Ephesians chapter, oh, wrong. Exodus chapter 35, verse 2. For six days work may be done, but the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Aren't you glad you live in an age of grace? Ooh, thank you, Jesus. I'm saved. Uh, yeah. Now, here we see in the Old Testament, rest was a priority. All right? Rest was God's idea. He gives us the Sabbath as a gift, not a curse. But let me make a really strong side comment here. In the Old Testament, when you're looking at the concept of rest, it's a picture. It's a picture that you have to rest from your works to try to please God. There's nothing you can do to earn His approval. There's nothing you can do to work hard enough to get Him to smile on you. Because Jesus did the work for you. And because he did the work for me, and I put my faith in what he did, I rest from my works. 
and now enjoy the work he has done for me. If I can add to his work, what do I need him for? Because I can't add to anything he's done. I can rest in what he's done. Every single cult you could name have, every, have one thing in common. Work, 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 work. You must be found worthy. You are not worthy. Work, 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 work. Hope you can be found worthy. Never an assurance. Never. In Islam, they teach that when you die, there are these angels watching you all over your life, all, all life long. And they're called recording angels. And when you die, one of them is sitting on your left shoulder, one of them is sitting on your right shoulder. One of them has added up all your good deeds in life, one of them has added up your bad deeds in life. And guess what they do? They have an argument. And whoever wins the argument determines what happens to you. That is no rest. That is no assurance, and that's certainly not what the Bible teaches. Uh, so, uh, yeah, real rest biblically means um, I can add nothing to what my Lord has already done for me. I'm at peace with God. There's no works I have to do. Wow, that's a picture of grace. Can't give enough for it. Can't uh, go to church enough for it. Can't read my Bible enough for it. It's a free gift of God. I rest in Christ. That's good news. I mean, that's really good news. Amen. That's like, yeah, yeah. That's good news stuff. So, so the concept of rest that uh, God also gave the people a rest as a picture. But there's more to it. Uh, people today don't value rest. Uh, and they don't know how to rest. Uh, you can hear it in the way they talk. I wish I didn't have to sleep. Too much to do. I wish there were 36 hours in the day. Only lazy people rest. Uh, so rest, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean sleep. Some people sleep and they're totally unrested, even though they slept. So rest has to be something more than this. Rest has to mean a time of renewal and refreshing. Rest restores the physical being. Rest restores our souls. Rest is a time to meditate and remember your Creator. Um, it's a time to, um, as we rest, we can remove all the obstacles that get in the way of our prayer. Remove all the obstacles that compete with our time with God. Uh, give us a concept of, wait, this is what really matters. My time with Him, lest I forget Him. Uh, Holy Spirit speaks to us in times of rest. When our heads are noisy and we're busy, Sometimes he can talk real loud, but generally he doesn't do that. He's a quiet, gentle voice when we have taken the time to rest. Many examples of that in the Bible that we're not going to look at tonight. Um, so that's a very important issue. When we rest, we are at peace. But when we resist rest, our soul will suffer. Our relationships suffer. Our creativity gets diminished. And our health deteriorates. True story, uh, there are some people who just refuse to rest. They can have good motives, but they refuse to rest. Many years ago, I was talking to uh, uh, Brother Rawls. He was the, um, the head of Keswick here in Whiting, the alcoholic and, uh, and uh, addiction uh, uh, rehab, a uh, uh, place where people go to get renewed and restored. Anyway, his grandfather started Keswick, and his grandfather— uh, constantly was on a train, this is in the 1800s, traveling constantly to minister, had no days off, never stopped, uh, 
speaking, and died at a young age. And he was a good man. And Brother Ross said he burned himself out. I never forgot that. He burned himself out. Wow, I don't think that was God's plan. There was no time for him for rest. He was obsessed with what he did, I guess in a good way. Uh, he was consumed by the things of God, but still, you got to rest. So don't be deceived. Rest can't wait. It's not an option. Uh, too many people do not make rest a priority. You'll hear comments like, well, how do I find the time to rest? I have too much to do. So I want to suggest, if you're writing this down, because I don't have an overhead, uh, I suggest you rank your priorities. This is real simple. Number one is the essentials. That is, if I don't do this, life stops. Okay, the essentials. Number two is important things, but they're not essential. Okay, you got that? Two is important things, but not essential. Three are helpful things, but not necessary. Four is the trivial. Then there's number five. And here is what we do in number five. We eliminate number three and four as much as possible. The helpful things that are not necessary and the trivial. We reduce number two, the important things but not essential, by 20%. Now you have time to rest. Rest can be found just that simple. Or make sure one day a week is devoted to rest. That's the Old Testament concept. This would also include a time of rest for your family, a time of rest to invest in your marriages. Doesn't mean, oh, I have time to watch now seven hours of football. Because you can do that. They have that now. Uh, yeah, so, hey, you know, most people only rest when they crash. And so we need to plan for rest or you're never going to have it. It's that simple. It's very important that we have this as our rhythm of life, as a part of life. So how we view this is very important. I think you can see this. Rest is not a time of unproductivity. It's a gift of God. And we can't live without it. So it's okay to do nothing. It's okay to rest. Rest is cool. Okay, let's look at our third one here, worship. Luke chapter 4, verse 8. Jesus replied to him, obviously talking to the evil one, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Okay, first of all, when we look at the concept of worship, um, how we live as an American church can, by practice, can easily uh, give us a wrong impression. This is well beyond a church service of singing songs. There's an aspect to it, no doubt about it, that we call worship. But the biblical concept of worship is far beyond a song. Uh, worship is as essential as rest. It's knowing your God and knowing we were made to worship Him. Okay? Interesting in the Old Testament, uh, whenever they had something to do with worship— it's what they did with their bodies. They would stand to worship, prostrate to worship, sing to worship, uh, bring an offering to worship. They were physically doing something. And yet in the New Testament, how about that? 
the same theme continues. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, there it is again, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Boy, we really can't emphasize enough, I think, how important it is what we do with our bodies. 20th, 21st century America abuses their bodies due to pleasure and due to uh, destructiveness. People abuse their bodies. Lack of rest will abuse your body. Um, so work can abuse your body if you overdo it, and on and on and on. Uh, so yeah, what we do with our bodies, how about that honors the Lord? I think if we get this revelation in our side of us, how we treat our physical bodies, we would think a lot different than pouring gobs of sugar in it and salt and high fats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think we would have a much better understanding of why this is really important. So worship is your life. It's not just a Sunday morning experience. And it's very important we get that. It's the activities of my day, the aspirations and thoughts of my heart during the day that I bring before him in all that I do. Uh, in the Old English, the word means to give worth. I'm giving worth, but I'm giving worth to the Lord by what I do in my life. So I worship him in my work. I worship him when I fellowship. I worship him with my finances. I worship him with my time. You know, we have to realize, what do we really call a Sunday service? It's a worship service. The message being brought is worship. My gosh, when we give, it's a time of worship. I can't stand when people receive offerings and they make jokes about it. Well, you know what time it is. Get those wallets ready. This is a time of worship, not silliness. This is a time of worshiping the Lord. When you give your finances in the, into the kingdom of God, that's your life it represents. Your sweat, your toil, your work just got worshiped onto the Lord. Something supernatural happens. Men in the natural receive your finances to do the work of the gospel, but something just took place in the spirit realm by faith and a connection with God that we can't understand with our minds. We're saying, Lord, you are Lord over my life. I show it to you by my finances going into the kingdom. It's not the size of the gift. It's the purpose and intention of the heart. That's why we should always make it an intention what we will give before we come to church. Because I intend to do this in faith as a commitment before God. I worship you, Lord, with my finances. It's cool when the, if the offering basket goes by, Lord, I worship you. And the check goes into the, into the basket. Praise the Lord. Men are impressed with big gifts, but the Lord is impressed that you worship him. We should have a whole new attitude about what we do with our finances, especially as we give. So, we see here that this goes beyond rest. Uh, our rest worships him, but our work worships him also. So, it's a little bit different here. Uh, when we worship him, like with the finances, we're giving our lives back to him uh, to show he's worthy. We're saying, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It's yours. I don't, I, I, I love the Andre, the, um, the Andre Crouch song, uh, you know, where he says, just live me, let me live my life, let it be pleasing to thee. It's not your life anymore. You gave it to the Lord. You gave it to the Lord. So we're giving him back the worth of our existence to worship him with it. Uh, that's why the Bible shows us that we live for the praise of his glory. 
So I can't say enough about that. Uh, how we worship depends on our understanding of this, that I live a life as a worshiper. Uh, we should want uh, him to have his way in our life. We should want to ha- live out his will in our lives, die to our own self-interest so that he can live through us. So having a mindset here, a mindset of worship, uh, is the only way to do this. That's my mindset of life. I worship. And let me just also mention uh, just a comment. There's a gross difference between corporate worship and private worship. When we come here, well, tonight we had corporate worship, right? Uh, People weren't all singing different songs. They were all singing the same song. And we have a corporate worship experience. What we do publicly is not what we do privately. Private worship is between you and God and nobody's business. Uh, But when I'm in a corporate worship setting, I have to respect my brothers and sisters around me. I don't impose my will or my worship uh, style on them. So if, uh, if you're a yeller screamer in, in, in the house when you praise and worship, fine. Well, I have to tune that down a little bit when I get around other people. We had one guy here, he was like to spin around and dance. He'd hit somebody occasionally with his hand, and he was totally insensitive that your personal worship experience doesn't belong here. Right? There used to be an old Supreme Court ruling, early 1920s, Adams versus something. I don't remember. It had to do with, uh, with um, if somebody insults you, do you have a right to, st- to physically strike them? And the Supreme Court justice said, your right to swing your fist ends at my nose. That was the Supreme Court ruling, and it's still the law to this day. And yeah, your right to personal worship ends at hitting me in the face when you run by me worshiping God. Come on, what are you doing here? This is not all about you. It's all about we're in a corporate worship together. And the, the, the anointing is different for a corporate worship. You can do things in a corporate worship as a believer and experience things you can't experience privately. It's a different. We don't have time to go on that. It's a whole separate teaching. But it's very important that we realize, gosh, if you get anything out of that, we bring worship to the church. So many people, they come to church to find worship. You got to bring it with you when you get here and contribute it to the body of Christ when we all get together. I bring worship here. I don't find worship here. I bring it here. And we experience something unique that's collective, that's live and for the moment, that really can't be repeated very well. I love worship CDs and everything, but, you know, it's not like being there. It's a different experience. Wow. So, um, a life of worship. We can't force it. But it needs to be encouraged and nourished for all of us. Um, We should all do something to bring worship to Him. So worship brings us strength, and it brings purpose to why we have a rhythm of life. All right, let's go here last here to play. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. No, it doesn't say play. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, okay. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every person who eats and drinks sees good in, his, in all his labor, this is a gift of God. Um, the concept of play is a 20th century invention and a concept. It's very similar to having fun. Prior to the 20th century, that didn't exist, that concept. 
Not like we interpret it today. Uh, the biblical equivalent that we're looking at here in Ecclesiastes is for them to rejoice. The biblical equivalent is living a rejoicing, a time of rejoicing. Uh, the biblical equivalent is rejoicing. So play is, e is equally important here in this rhythm of life. It brings it to full circle as we looked at the circle up there. Play is having fun. It contributes to our physical and our emotional beings as well. It relieves the tensions of life. There's benefits for our health. There's benefits for family life. There's benefits for our marriage. It pays to play. So play, you know, is very personal. For some, it's very strenuous sports, which I do not understand. For other, these people that climb mountains, like, come on, I'll watch pictures of you. Uh, for others, it's a time of fellowship with other believers, right? Just gathering together, hanging out. That's a time of play. It can be a musical instrument. It could be collecting things, right? A collection of interest to us. It could be a day out and venture of shopping, a, a venture to go shop. It can be a hobby. Yes, there is no sin in having a hobby or a personal interest that satisfies you. The scientists uh, from the Galileo, and he did for fun, he collected buttons. This is a guy who invents the telescope. He invents the first thermometer. And what does he do? He collects buttons. Oh, look at this one. Nicer than that one. Wow. I wouldn't think of this guy as a button collector. But that's what it was fun to him. He collected buttons. So there's three types of play. The first one is called recreational. These are games. These are sports. Usually outdoor activities. Their benefits are they reduce stress. They produce overall physical well-being. Um, I remember one time I was at an amusement park. I think it was Six Flags. No, uh, was that a Six Flags? It was in Virginia, Virginia Beach, right outside of uh, Colonial Williamsburg. And um, we, we were on a boat going down the river there. Every, we were in our 30s. Everybody on the boat was over 60 years old and 70 years old. We're the only young ones there. Anyway, we go underneath this ride that loops around the river. And, of course, all these kids are screaming, ah! As they go around the ride, everyone's watching real quiet. And the guy driving the boat goes, that ride is highly recommended for the elderly. Everybody left. They're like, I don't think so. Anyway, so there's, next is family-centered uh, play. These can be recreation. This can be games. Vacations fall in this category. Anything centered around family time. You know, you know something, if you ever think about this, consider some of our best memories are here. When you look back over your lifetime and remember growing up, you remember when the family had fun. You don't remember, unless you've been traumatized, you don't really remember the misery things. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. It's the fun times you had. When people talk about growing up, oh, it was hey, we didn't have any TV then. We had fun. We did this. We did that. Everyone talked about the fun things they had, places they went to, things they did, vacations they did. So we often remember our playtime with the family more than any other memory. How about that? How about that? We remember the fun. And, of course, for family time, always remember for children— uh, love is spelled P-L-A-Y-T-I-M-E. I don't remember where I heard this from. It was from some child psychology thing when I was in college. But it was a good point. Play is a child's work. 
That's work for them. They learn through it. To them, that's work. Like you're an adult, you go to work, they play, they go to work. That's work for them. And we need to play with them. Uh, when my granddaughter comes over the house, my wife is very happy to see her go home. If she puts her into total exhaustion. Grandma, come on over here. Grandma, play here. No, Grandpa, you don't sit there. You sit there. You can tell it's a girl. They tell you what to do at a young age. Right. Marital is another type of uh, play. Uh, marital play is undivided time together where your spouse knows because of the time you're spending with them, they're the most important person on the face of this earth next to Jesus. That's got to be the message we give our spouse. You're the most important person on the face of this earth next to Jesus. And that time of enjoyment and fun together says exactly that. Benefits, it reduces conflict, better communication, and your marriage is enhanced. So, play, the only goal of it is have fun. It lives in the here and now. Uh, we don't play to achieve anything. If we do, it ceases to become play. So don't turn play into work. And you know, it's so sad, so many people avoid play. Relax, play. Nothing kills play faster than guilt. Guilt will kill rest and play because we're told by others or we tell ourselves this is a waste of time. No, you can play without guilt. You can make play a priority. It's okay. You can tell them I said so. And you don't have to apologize for playing. So bringing this to a close here as our night's getting on here, uh, let me read to you regarding this rhythm of life uh, that Exley wrote about in his book. I love the quote here. Uh, Most Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. As a result, their values are destroyed and their relationships disintegrate faster than they can repair them. That's a lot of insight there. We can't ignore this rhythm of life. God intended for us to live this out. So I think this is also from, Dennis, uh, from Richard, actually, I don't remember, but I wrote it down. I don't know where this comes from. So the lazy need to be encouraged to work. The overachiever needs to be exhorted to rest. And those who live a life of play need to become sober and worship. And those who know how to rest, they need to teach the rest of us how to do this. So if we live out this rhythm of life, our lives will be definitely more fulfilled. Are you getting something out of this? A different way of looking at life? There are people that need to be told it's okay to play. It's okay. You don't have to apologize for it. If people don't understand that, who cares? They need to be told it's okay to rest. It's okay. The work part we get too often, but we don't understand enough the worship part, how serious this is. In all of this, I'm a worship unto the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, yes, Lord, teach us to rest. Let us know, Lord God, what we put our hand to has value as we work. Let us know, Lord God, that uh, in rest we find a refreshment in your presence. Let us know, Lord God, that we are to enjoy one another as you want to enjoy us. That we are to enjoy our God. 
And Father God, have that uh, a life of, of, of joy, a life of happiness, a life of fulfillment, knowing that it's because of my God, he's given this to me as a gift. We receive this gift, Father God, of all these four rhythms of life. And we ask, Lord God, that Holy Spirit would bring this back to our remembrance in the days ahead, that, Father, it would be part of how we think and how we'll train our children one day to be much more productive, vibrant adults. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hope you got something from that. Something I forgot to mention, your children are watching you. Your grandchildren are watching you. They're learning what's important in life. And if you don't show them that rest is important when play is important, you don't want them to grow up to be workaholics. Like the Cats in the Cradle song. You don't want that to happen. So you, they're learning by watching you and by what you prioritize as a family. So always keep that in mind. Amen?